Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn. Join us this week as John continues his series on 2 Corinthians. We like to describe the kind of church we're aspiring to be as a group of people, and now I'm going to kind of quote our, our, our mantra, a group of people striving to display Jesus as the center of all life by thriving relationships with God and one another and tangible acts of service to our neighbors. Last week, as we're working through 2 Corinthians, and we're starting in chapter 4 now this morning, last year I, I meant to say more about the word ministry. If you remember when I brought it up last week, I said, you know, we kind of associate that word completely just with church ideas, ministry. Meanwhile, there's like a ministry of transport, there's a ministry of finance, a ministry of foreign affairs, a ministry of this, that, and the other thing. And what does that word mean when we use it in government? It means somebody's a steward of or in charge of basically just delivering the resources under that title. And uh, it's interesting because that's actually a lot closer to, to what the Bible's idea of ministry is. Um, in the New Testament, the term ministry always centers on acts of service to others. Sometimes it carries a heavier connotation or a more powerful one of servitude or slavery to God even. If we put them all together, ministry implies a sense of being duty-bound, really, to work under God's authority as His servant. Um, it doesn't appear in our vision statement that I read to you, but it's kind of all over it, um, the whole idea of, of service. When you think uh, of uh, the word ministry, do you kind of picture um, organizational charts, lines of authority? You know, we could, it would be a tangent, we could go another direction and say, when did the label ministers become the concept uh, of only a select few in a congregation. If you kind of dig into your history and figure out when that happened, you're probably finding a spot where things really kind of got off track in congregational life. You may have heard uh, somebody uh, described as having a powerful ministry. Well, what if you substitute what I just said is synonymous with the Bible's word of ministry and described and put it in the word service. So-and-so has a really powerful service. It sounds like somebody that's beating you at tennis all the time. Like it's, it's this whole idea of submission to God and his leadership and his authority and, and serving. Um, as you may remember, uh, those of you that are visiting today, you're kind of coming in uh, in week five of a series. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing a, a letter that doesn't necessarily have just one theme through the whole letter, but it does have one really big theme. And that is uh, the whole idea of Paul having to justify his existence as a legitimate Christian leader. I've mentioned a number of times he's very gracious about this. There's a humility in the fact that Paul is even going about doing this. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about his not being the Chuck Norris kind of leader. It's funny that I use those Chuck Norris things because you know how our computers are like reading our mind and we're typing things and our Gmail is sending us ads. All of a sudden, I'm getting all these ads. I just saw this thing come up on Facebook of Chuck Norris and some magic water he's drinking that makes him so vibrant at 81 years of age. But Paul was not that rock hard warrior kind of person that the Greco-Roman um, people in the first century really would have thought, now that's a leader. Paul says, I'm not that kind of leader. 
I'm not even supposed to be that kind of leader. So he has to defend himself against that. There were people that felt he didn't stack up well against Moses and the old covenant. They talked, you know, Moses, his face like shone after he was with God. And Paul says, we have a whole different glory, a superior glory. Well, Moses brought us the law. He said, the new covenant, God writes the law on your heart. Gets right down onto the inside. It's even a superior covenant. Well, he's still on all of those tracks in the part that we're writing at. We looked last week how the Holy Spirit writes this new covenant on our hearts. It gets right in there. It's more permanent even than one that's written in stone. And like I say, he's still on that track here. And we're going to cover just a few verses in chapter 4. Paul is defending his way of serving how he go about, goes about doing things. And in, so, in, in doing so, as he defends himself, he kind of accidentally lays out a pattern for us. Now, it's God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul to write this letter, so to say he accidentally gives us some advice on how we do ministry that's not really the right word, maybe unintentionally. I highly doubt Paul's sitting down writing, defending his own ministry, and thinks he's going to provide some real food for people 20 centuries from now to understand how they should be serving God. But he does that. He, he gives us an amazing, concise model for our own striving to do the things we say we want to do in our vision statement. Uh, just last Wednesday night, I took part in an in a online podcast interview. A friend of mine does one of these every week from his church in Kitchener. And we were interviewing the now 81-year-old camp director that this guy Anthony and I both worked with in our first kind of taste of doing ministry. Anthony was 18. I was 17. This guy, Bill, was only in his late 30s. Built an entire Western ranch, built all the buildings, directed it for 10 years. And Anthony and I, as young guys, we met each other serving at this camp. So we're just interviewing him about what it was, the culture that he created at this amazing camp. And uh, he had all kinds of things that we remember him teaching us. So we're having all this nostalgia. But one thing that stuck out in our minds, these profound four words that shaped our lives, that he used to say at staff meetings almost every morning, it's for the kids. <laughs> Doesn't sound very profound, does it? But if you're trying to run a summer ministry with a bunch of self-centered, insecure, 16, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, what's the natural tendency for teenagers? Hang out with all your friends, get enamored with all these new friendships. And meanwhile, there's all these campers hanging around and the staff are all... So Bill would say, it's for the kids, remember that. And, and it really got into us. It, it kind of changed our lives. It helped us to get up, not being so self-obsessed as you are in a 17-year-old. And, and at that camp, when you looked around, it's like, you know what a good staff person is? You know where you see them? During the free time. During the free time, there was like an hour every night where they opened the candy store. It's called Tuck Shop Time. It's a genius building model. You pay teenagers 20 bucks a week to work there, and then you sell them candy every night. And uh, sometimes I'd, I'd get cut off. Say, John, you've already spent your week's wages. No more candy for you. Anyway, during that free time, my friend Anthony, I remember him, and there would be 100 campers lined up for their candy. And Anthony would start at the beginning of the line on Monday, and he'd start trying to, what's your name? Barb, Fred, Rico. And then he'd, he'd go, Barb, Fred, Rico. And he'd try to make his way all the way down the line. And by about day three, every week he would. Like that was an example of that culture that our camp director had created. Well, when it comes to gospel ministry service, how do you spot somebody that's doing it the right way? 
What are the things that really stand out? What are some principles? I'm, I'm going to steal uh, an outline for the next two weeks from the book that the uh, women are using in their second Corinthians study. We're going to look at four principles this week and four the next week that can really help us flesh this out of what we're looking for. What, what does it look like? Um, I, I used a, I mean, a skiing analogy a couple weeks ago. I'm going to use another one this morning to, to kind of make this point of what we're after. I, I could take you to a ski hill, and if you've never skied before, I think within 40 minutes, I could get you going down the bunny hill without killing yourself, because I teach you something called the snowplow. Anybody ever taken ski lessons or skied as a kid? You can see, we used to call them yetis, like a yeti is a beginner. And you know a yeti, because they're in this stance with their tails out and their tips in and they're all tense and everything but basically they're plowing their way down the hill they put a little weight on this leg they turn this way they put a little more this way they turn that way and we try to get them down the hill without running into people or snow fences or other things but basically that's all you really need to know and then if you saw a more experienced skier going down the hill and they're just carving beautifully down the hill they're still doing exactly the same thing that person in the snowplow did they're just hiding it a little bit, but they're really just going down on one foot on the inside edge and the other foot on the inside edge, and it looks so beautiful. But you know those basic principles that you learned doing the snowplow. Nobody wants to look like a Yeti, but those are the basics. Once you've got those down, you're, you're set, and you can, you can actually do the thing with beauty. Paul has some principles like this here for us that are crucial for us to be on the right track in trying to serve God and share the gospel. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to take a look at some of these things. I'm going to read the first six or seven verses of chapter four. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. The first principle here in verse 1 and 2 that I want you to see this morning is, is that God's shown us mercy in giving us the opportunity for gospel service in this way. Well, what do I mean by that? Uh, I like that uh, the, the New Living Translation that I read this morning has that line that God in his mercy has given us this new way. Your, your translation you have in front of you might say has given us this ministry. And then we kind of get distracted by that word ministry. And Paul's really talking about his way of doing things, his way of serving. And he's, 
He's, he's doing things in the new covenant that we talked about last week, and he's showing us how to do the same. Paul's in a battle. If you remember from the first three chapters, he's, he's in this battle for the hearts and minds of the people in a church in, in a place called Corinth that he had started many years earlier. And uh, now he's in a battle for, um, they seem to have lost heart, they seem to have lost trust in him as a leader, and then due to false teachers infiltrating their ranks, they're now in danger of actually losing their way. And Paul reminds them, God in his mercy has given us a new way. And since this is God's way of doing things, Paul's basically not losing heart. Um, because there might not be a whole lot of impressive results or things happening, because he's confident that this is the way that God has shown us to do things. He's not losing heart, even if there's not a lot of impressive results or thousands of likes on their church Facebook page, if they had one in the first century. I kind of doubt it. The internet was pretty lousy back then. Anyway, remember Paul on the Damascus Road? It's a very familiar Bible story that most of us know as children, where it's Saul on the road to Damascus, breathing out threats of violence with official papers in his hand, going to shut this thing down. And on that way, he gets interrupted, right? Well, that story, his actions there at the beginning of that story on the Damascus road prove that there's more to serving God than he means well. Well, he means well. His, his methods are wrong, but he means well. Because something that we don't often point out is Paul was absolutely convinced on that Damascus road that he was trying to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength. He was zealous to protect God's children from being led astray and taken away from the faith of his fathers. He was absolutely committed to that, and he was doing it wrong. He was doing it completely wrong. I mean, when you're on the way for a mission like that, and God stops you in your tracks, and you hear a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That, my friends, is a pretty lousy performance appraisal. He was doing it wrong. And God, in his mercy, stopped him in his tracks. That's Jesus' voice speaking out to him. Interesting, when it happened, um, he's blinded. Paul becomes blind. We're going to get to a point here where Satan is shown as blinding people to the message of the gospel. Satan's not the only one in this life story that does blinding. Jesus blinds Paul, prevents him from going in his mercy, and later we know that those scales are removed from his eyes. It's amazing. So Paul basically says, when he says it's by God's mercy that we've been given this new way, he's speaking his life story here. What is this new way? It's everything we've looked at from the last couple of weeks. In chapters 1 to 3, to quote uh, Gary Miller, the man that I got this outline from this morning, he summarizes the first three chapters describing this new way as a life-giving, new covenant, glory-revealing character-transforming ministry of the Spirit through the gospel. So Paul never gives up because he perseveres in thankfulness for being stopped in his track and set onto God's actual path. So why would he ever try to alter the way? He didn't invent this way. 
These aren't ideas he's cooked up. This isn't a way of doing ministry that he made up. Why would he ever go off the path that God in his mercy has shown him? And, and, and do things any other way. Well, what other way? What are other ways that somebody... Well, verse 2 is great here. As, as Baptists, we love verses like this because it tells us a number of things we should not do. And we love our list of things not to do. Here's some things we're told to reject. He says, reject... Shameful deeds, underhanded methods, trickery, distortion of God's word. He's basically in a negative way declaring that God's way of doing things is with transparency transparency and integrity. Those are God's ways, not shifty, sneaky, underhanded ways. We could spend all day as part of the discussion this morning um, through all church history showing that humans have an incredible creative ability on this uh, inventing Jesus plus programs, (laughs) inventing alternate ways and shameful ways and, and, and deceptive ways. You know, we could, history buffs could go all the way back to the crusades, you know, kill the infidels, you know, or relics. When somebody claims to have a nail from the cross or a part of Jesus burial shroud, and they use that for like circus, like attractional evangelism, um, You know, we had all kinds of things. We have more current event ideas. We could talk about prosperity gospels where placing your faith in Christ is uh, kind of the secret for you having the incredibly wealthy lifestyle like your favorite jet flying evangelist has. Um, Ministry methods of our lifetime have been influenced uh, in a big way by an old book called Revivals of Religion. That book written in the 1800s, took some kind of methods that pragmatically speaking worked and got results. And before you knew it, uh, emotional pleas, setting a mood in a service, um, something called the anxious bench. You know, you got people so afraid that they would go to this bench and get things straightened out. Uh, Basically, all kinds of ways to play upon emotions that, um, and then be able to say, well, that's the Holy Spirit working right there. Could you see that? Do you feel that? And people bought this book by the millions because it had these secret methods for getting results. And basically, if you apply these methods, you're going to experience revivals. We're not immune to these kinds of things. I thought, you know, I've been hard on people in church history. I remember our first year here in Brooklyn. And uh, one of the first Easter's, put on all kinds of flyers. We had a giant Easter egg hunt over at the school. I mean, we had a magician. We had a magician. We had musicians, we had a whole bunch of kids, and we had Easter eggs all over the field. And inside, in the field, there were also, we had kites to give away, we had prizes, and these plastic Easter eggs that all had props in them. And you could return one of these plaster Easter eggs to me and win a kite. And then as I addressed the crowd at the end, I could open these eggs, and I could tell this salvation message. And I remember when I was doing it, at one point, as I was going through this message, I saw a mom say to the other one, I knew it. <laughs> and I knew we've just done a bait and switch here. We told kids, hey, come for candy. And now I'm telling them about hell and judgment. And, and it's like, kids need to hear that message. But I knew there was something untoward about the way we had done it. I mean, we could have had posters that say, come and get free eggs and hear a gospel presentation. 
and then, hey, go for it. Like, so I'm not saying that the whole thing that we did was, was misguided, but do you, you see what I mean about there's something underhanded about such methods? And Paul's saying, that's not how we do things. That's not how we do it. Um, I remember as a freshman in Bible college, now I'm going back 43 years, and me and my roommate, we were unleashed on the streets of Moose Jaw with our 200 other friends to go from door to door, and we all had clipboards. And the clipboards had on them a survey. And we were knocking on doors. Yes, we're here to take a survey, and we'd ask them some questions, and then we'd try to give them a gospel presentation. As I thought about this this week, I'm thinking... I wonder what happened with all the surveys. I don't remember a chapel later on. The survey said, and here's all the data that we collected. Like there was no survey. So, so why? We could have just knocked on the doors and said, we're from Briarcrest down the road, and we'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Are you interested in hearing us tell you about Jesus? Um, rather than this trick of a survey. Because let's face it, there was no survey. Paul says, we don't try to trick. Another author paraphrased Paul's method as, get the message straight and tell the message straight. God's mercifully given us this message. Let's deliver it as we received it. Sometimes you can change something so much, it's no longer the same thing. And we like to justify a lot by saying, well, we're bringing an unchanging message in a new way or a new container or a new package. But the packages matter. Trust what God has given us in this glorious gospel and deliver that. Second principle, I got to keep moving, is we're in a fight. So, of course, it's going to be hard. If you look at verses 3 and 4, you will see that um, we have an enemy. The effectiveness or lack thereof of the message is all too often pinned on the messenger or Paul's being accused that it's proof that he's broken principles one in verses 1 and 2, by altering the message. But Paul introduces an all-too-often-overlooked factor, and that's an enemy. Paul says if there's a blockage on people's reception of the good news, that's not surprising since there's a blocker. And his name is Satan. The God of this world is the title Paul gives him. That's a difficult title. The God of this world, I was pretty sure that there's just one Lord. Isn't God the Almighty Sovereign? Isn't Jesus Lord? We're going to see in a few minutes. Yes, that indeed is our message. So how is Satan the God of this world? Well, it's not that every, it's not that every person uh, in the world that hasn't become a Christian is somehow then a conscious, dedicated Satanist. That's not what Paul is saying. It's this, it, it, that Jesus is Lord of all. He's the, he's the sovereign Lord. There's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And Satan, the deceiver, probably couldn't care less what we worship as long as it's not Jesus. So therefore, he's, he's a blocker. He's a, a deceiver. He's a liar. And people's hearts are drawn to anything but Christ. That makes him the God of this world. That's what they're looking to, worshiping, even consciously or unconsciously. Let me bring it all. There's a spiritual blindness shared by every unbeliever, known or unknown, recognized or unrecognized. Let me bring it closer to home to all of us here in this room, no matter where you peg yourself in a journey of becoming a fully devoted Christ follower. If you are confident this morning that you are a, are a Christian, well, you may have to remember that uh, 
You can't take credit for that yourself. You may remember a time when you called out to Jesus to save you and something spiritual happened to you, but that happened to you as an act of grace by his own Holy Spirit. It's not unlike the second half of Paul's journey on the Damascus Road. You were stopped in your tracks. Jesus revealed himself. Scales fell from your eyes and you saw Jesus for who he is. Thank God. And remember that is an act of mercy. So now we're praying for God to do the same merciful act for others. I mean, what would be the motivation for Paul to just pass the buck to Satan? As you read, it's kind of like, well, you know, I did what I did. And if people don't realize it, that's just because Satan's blinded him. So it's not my fault. I don't think Paul's explaining this idea as a shoulder shrug. He's telling us there's something bigger than us. If we're trying to do this in our own power, um, the people that we're seeking to reach, we should never think of them as unreachable. That kind of betrays a little bit of a false pride in ourselves. Like, oh yeah, well, I heard the message and it made perfectly good sense to me. And so I made the right choice in doing this. No, God did something in our hearts. So we pray for him to do the same. You, You could have a recipe card in your Bible. I'd recommend this. I don't have one. I should. With the names of five people that you're sure or fairly sure to have no interest in, in Christ. And you're praying for them to become believers. Well, generally, when we pull out a prayer card like that, we pray things like, dear Lord, give me the guts to invite them to the Christmas Eve service, or God, help me to think of a way to say something that will convince them, or God, help me not to mess it up when I try to talk to them. Meanwhile, I think we should be going much deeper. We should be praying for God to give them the same mercy that he gave us. God, take the blinds off of their eyes. Show your grace to them like you did to me. If if you can use me to do that, fantastic. But God, I don't know how to cure blindness. Fortunately, I know somebody that does. His name is Jesus. And we we need to, this should be a huge motivator to prayer to know that we have an enemy like that. This that causes blindness. You're in a fight, so it's going to be hard. Knowing that can help us not to lose heart. Principle three, it's it's not about us. Verse five, I'm just going to read verse five again. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. I often joke about the time my late dad used to say to me, spiritual pride is terrible. And you know who the worst people are? The Baptists and the Brethren and the Pentecostals. And I remember driving home that day thinking, those are the only three kinds of churches dad's ever attended. So he's basically just talking about, it's a problem. And, and we, start, we start thinking that we've got it all together and, and somebody else doesn't. Um, but verse 5 says, we don't preach ourselves. It's not about us. What do we preach? Verse 5 is a seriously underrated verse for memorization. In 20 words or so in every English Bible, you have a definition of genuine Christian ministry right there. You know, we live in a time where developing a brand or an online presence is something way too many of us are enamored with as we think about how to do ministry. Paul's not pursuing degrees, accolades, press, prestige, name recognition, Recognition. The reason is he's not trying to become a master because he already has one. 
He's not trying to be a savior because there already is one. He's not trying to be the king because he already serves under one. What does he say? We preach Jesus Christ is Lord. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to say those seven words. I'm going to say them for you once again. Get ready to repeat them. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. What did we just say? Well, that word Jesus means God saves. We preach Jesus. That's a name given to him. We'll probably bring that up in our Advent time. He's the Savior. That's who he is. We preach that. Christ, that word means he's the anointed, the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. He's not a way to get to the things you really want in life. He is what we really want in life. He is the ultimate promise. He's the, he's the goal. He's not the way to get to some other stuff. He's, he's the thing. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed. And, and we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, which means supreme over everything, even death and the grave on the first Easter. Because of who he is, all people at all times in all places will give an account to him someday. Anybody that's grasped that has embraced the gospel. And, and that further makes the point from the first sentence in this verse, it's not all about us. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. After all this talk about veils and blindness and obstacles, why become an obstacle ourselves? <laughs> why, why preach ourselves? Why put ourselves in front of the gospel message? Why get in the way of where the real hope is for the blind and the lost? Why attract their attention to anything or anyone else? In principle four, God has shown us his glory in the face of Christ. Two passages should come to mind when we look at verses six and seven. Andrew read one from Matthew four, but there's two passages. Genesis one, three, simple line. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. I quote that verse a lot of times to remind us about the kind of power God has in his word. Like there was a time when there was no light and God said, light, and there was light. So God has that power. That's important for us, isn't it? As we think about sharing our faith. Isaiah 9-2 describes a time when things were really grim in Israel. And Isaiah wrote, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. That's one of the promises that we'll unpack in Advent as well. When Matthew quotes it, he goes from people walking in darkness to people sitting in darkness. By the time Jesus arrived, they were hopeless. And God gives that kind of light. Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4 is the light that God shone in our hearts. Again, if you're a Christian, you have to see the grace and mercy in the fact that in your darkness, God said, let there be light. And we were able to see the glory of God, which is in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul describes it. But did Paul see his face? Uh, but Paul did, I should say. But Paul did see his face on that Damascus road, as other apostles did. What about us? We, we, we can't see his face in that way of a physical sense. So we take everything they've given us about this Jesus and we lift that up. And that's what we tell people about. That's what we focus our ministries on. Think back about how this creation power aimed backwards, the, the, the light of Christ that said, let there be light and there was light. Well, now that enemy that's greater than us doesn't seem so overwhelming, does he? 
from the right perspective, from the right perspective of us seeking to cure blindness and darkness with the Savior, the creator of all, when we see that, we pray that other people will see that as well. Let me close with a quote from a man named John Piper about this idea of seeing Jesus for who he is. He says, this is the highest and best and final good that makes all the other good things promised in the gospel good. Justification is good news because it makes us stand accepted from the one whose glory in front of the one whose glory we want to see and the savior above all things. Whose glory we want to see and savor above all things. Forgiveness is good news because it cancels all the sins that keep us from seeing and enjoying the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Removal of wrath and salvation from hell are good news because now in my escape from misery, I find eternal pleasure beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Eternal life is good news because this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they know me and him who sent me. And freedom from sin and pain and conflict are good news because in my freedom from pain, I'm no longer distracted from the fullest enjoyment of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, from what the Apostle Paul has told us in our passage today, our, our knowing you should be something that revolutionizes our perspective. Lord, forgive us if we are believers in you and have been given the mercy and grace of being able to see your son for who he is, if we've grown dull in that, that we've lost our joy and our praise and worship for the mercy that you've shown us. We do pray for our loved ones. Uh, maybe they're here. Maybe they're on a list in our minds. Maybe we have a piece of paper written down with their names on them. Lord, I pray that you would bless them with the same mercy and grace you gave us. Help them to see your son as the way, the truth, and the life. And that they too could know freedom from sin and relationship with God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.